Go ahead and find Matthew chapter 5 with me. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Good to see you this morning. Hope to uh, see you again this afternoon at 5 o'clock. <clears throat> when we come back then, we'll have our uh, monthly Q&A night, a time in which you all get to ask me hard questions and watch me squirm and uh, twist myself up trying to answer your hard questions. But we always have a good time. I hope you be back this evening. Matthew 5 and verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's interesting to think about these words we've just read are the first recorded words Jesus ever preached in his public ministry. The first recorded words in Jesus' public ministry are right here in Matthew 5 and verse 3. Now, Matthew 4.17 summarizes the overall message Jesus had already begun to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but we don't actually get a full sermon or a fleshed out sense of Jesus' message until the Sermon on the Mount, which begins with those words, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first words out of Jesus' mouth are a blessing pronounced on the poor in spirit. So he takes all the imagery, all the shame and unpleasantness we associate with poverty, he applies it to the spiritual realm, and then he says it's good to be that way. So imagine ragged clothes, imagine homelessness, imagine the inability to get food, imagine deep need and desperation. And Jesus says that true citizens of his kingdom see themselves as spiritually being in a state like that. People who say, I am spiritually poor, I need a savior because I am a sinner, I need wisdom because I am foolish, I need hope because I am hopeless. I need direction because I don't know where to go. Jesus says that as soon as you own your poverty like that, you are ready to be rich. That the kingdom of heaven is for people like that. His kingdom is not for people who think they, are, who think they have it all together. It's for people who know they don't. Th- these words really set a tone for everything Jesus ever says and ever does. They, they also serve as a commentary on the rest of the Gospels. They explain why some people are so eager to follow Jesus and why some are so resistant to Jesus. The division between kingdom citizen and kingdom stranger in the Gospels is the same division between the poor in spirit and the rich in spirit. Between those who own their spiritual poverty and those who disown their spiritual poverty. I think this is a fundamental idea in Jesus' message. And if it is, then we need to reckon with it. I want to think this morning about why it is so important to own our spiritual poverty, what difference it makes to be poor in spirit. Number one, I want to say that owning your poverty is, number one, the key to understanding Jesus. Owning your spiritual poverty is the key to understanding Jesus. Go with me to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. Some people in the Gospels have a lot of trouble understanding Jesus. Uh, And at the head of that line are the Pharisees. Um, a group of very devout Jews who continually question Jesus about his habits and about his teaching. Uh, That questioning, it begins as questioning the Gospels, it eventually turns into accusing Jesus and condemning Jesus, and ultimately it becomes uh, crucifying Jesus, that the Pharisees are the group that are agitating for that punishment. 
In John chapter 9, when, when Jesus heals a blind man, we have the Pharisees who come into the picture, and they're sort of uh, bustling about like a corrupt police force. That's what I think of them in John chapter 9. They're like corrupt police. So they're ignoring all the evidence that Jesus has really worked a miracle. They're threatening witnesses of the miracle who are testifying to its truth. They're refusing to consider the possibility that Jesus has actually done something and that we should conclude anything about him. No amount of evidence can convince them. Why are they so opposed to Jesus? I think the end of this story gives the answer. This is John 9 and verse 41. John 9 and verse 41. Jesus gives his summary of what all that has happened here. John 9, 41. Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. This is Jesus' pronouncement on the state of their hearts. Basically what he says is, they think they know it all already. They say, we see, and Jesus says, that's the reason you cannot see. They think they have everything they need, which keeps them from pursuing the most important thing that they need. They will not own their poverty and they reject Jesus because of it. The seeing people are blind in this story. Because you say we see, because you say I know it all already, I already have a full picture of what God's up to, because you say that, you are blind and you do not see and you do not understand. The seeing people are blind in this story. And meanwhile, the blind guy in this story is the only one who sees. His heart is open to Jesus. And he's the one who's able to see Jesus for who he really is. And he's the one who's able to see Pharisee rejection for what it really is. So as the Pharisees are trying to discredit the miracle and all the messianic implications the miracle has about Jesus, it's the blind man who clearly sees the truth. This is John 9 verse 32. John 9 verse 32. In which the blind man, he's talking to the Pharisees who are threatening him to keep silent, don't tell anyone about what's happened. And this is what he says in, in John 9 32. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He is capable of understanding Jesus because he does not assume he already knows the answers. He is open that some new thing has happened, that the fact that this miracle has occurred means something about Jesus. He's not trying to tell Jesus why he's wrong. His mind is not already made up. And it's no surprise that in a few verses he will declare his faith in Jesus. He'll say this to Jesus in verse 38, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. The blind man sees because he knew he was blind. And the Pharisees cannot see because they thought they already saw. That's what's happening in John 9. The blind man is blessed because he owned his spiritual poverty, and the Pharisees are cursed because they will not. This same pattern plays itself out again and again in the Gospels. Jesus comes preaching the need for repentance, preaching salvation from sin. He says things like, unless you repent, you will perish, Luke 13, 5. And people like the Pharisees never take him seriously. Why not? Because they don't believe they need anything from him. Because they don't believe they're poor, they don't come eager for the riches Jesus offers. Preaching salvation to the Pharisees is a bit like trying to sell ice to an Eskimo. All right, They already have what he's selling, they think. It's really them, they think. It's them who are the purveyors of salvation. And so they resent Jesus' implication that they're as desperate as anyone else, that they need him as much as everyone else does. And so that, they devote their time, they devote their effort 
always to trying to disqualify Jesus. Sometimes they argue about his place of origin. They say in John 7.52, Are you from Galilee? Search and see, no prophet arises from Galilee. Sometimes they, they attribute his miracles to the power of Satan. They say in Matthew 12.24, It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of the demons, that this man casts out demons. When they can't deny the miracle, they say he did the miracle by Satan's power and not God's. They try to entrap him with trick questions about applying the law of Moses. They accuse him of breaking tradition. They ask him to weigh in on hot-button questions, so either he'll draw the ire of Rome or the ire of his Jewish supporters. That's the Pharisee story arc. Questioning, accusing, trapping, condemning, and ultimately crucifying. Do you know what else is happening throughout the Gospels while Jesus is being confronted by the Pharisees every other chapter? At the same time, Jesus is drawing to himself great numbers of tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners. Luke 15.1 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Why is that? What do these people know that the Pharisees do not? How can they see Jesus clearly while the Pharisees cannot? It's because the tax collectors and sinners didn't need to be convinced that they were spiritually poor and in need of salvation. They didn't need to be convinced that they needed a Savior, so when the Savior showed up, they were primed to be disciples of that Savior. And so when Jesus tells a collection of chief priests and elders this, he says this in John twenty-one thirty-one: even the tax collectors and sinners go into the kingdom of God before you. When Jesus says that, he's telling a literal truth. It's not a literary device. It's not an exaggerated statement to grab attention. What he's saying is these people, the tax collectors and prostitutes, they are not too good for Jesus. The people who know they need something, find it when they meet Jesus. And the people who don't think they need anything, don't find anything when they find Jesus. So think about this. You can't understand Jesus and why you need him unless you have a very clear picture of your own spiritual destitution. As long as you think you've got the world figured out and you've got all the answers and you've got your life together and you're something special and if only everyone would listen to me then the world would be a perfect place. As long as you think that about yourself you will not fully understand Jesus. And, and may I add that doesn't change once we become Christians either. We, we might have our lives together better now than we did before. But of course, we don't take credit for that. That's because of Jesus. And we're constantly reminded of how much we need Jesus. For example, when we take the Lord's Supper, and we're reminded of the sacrifice that, that, that He gave on our behalf because of our sin, because of our spiritual destitution. Reminded of it every time we confess our sins, which hopefully is every day. Reminded it when we read our Bible with honest self-evaluation. Own your spiritual poverty, New Testament says, and you'll understand Jesus. Don't own your spiritual poverty, and you will not. Number two, owning your spiritual poverty is the key to understanding yourself. Yourself. Let me tell you something I've come to realize. <clears throat> I probably should be embarrassed it took me so long to realize this, but it's a pretty recent realization. To have humility, to be a humble person, is not a matter of attaining some great virtue. If you are humble, you have not attained some great virtue. When I am humble, I have not achieved some extraordinary feat, and I deserve no praise because I am humble. Here's the realization I made. When I am humble, all I am doing is living in reality. All I'm doing when I'm humble is seeing myself as I really am. 
That's all humility is, and it's nothing more than that. When I am humble, all I'm doing is living in the real world. That's it. To own my spiritual poverty is not some mental trick. It's not some mindset I achieve, and it'll be beneficial to me, even if it's not totally the truth. No, to own my spiritual poverty simply means I see myself as I really am. I have a true picture of myself. I I want to show you this. In the Gospel of John, Jesus has all these famous I am statements where he pronounces things about himself. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He says, I am the light of the world, on and on like that. Obviously, when Jesus says that, he's saying things about himself. But do you also realize in each I am statement Jesus makes about himself, there is an implied you are statement about us. Every time Jesus says I am, he is implying something about us and you are. So let me show you this. John 6 and verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. If Jesus is the bread of life, the one who satisfies our hunger and thirst, what does that make us? Well, that makes us hungry and thirsty. That makes us poor people who need feeding. If Jesus comes in to meet this great need, then we must be the ones who have this great need. Do you see it? John 8 and verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So if Jesus is the light who dispels the darkness of our path so that we can see and know where to go, what does that mean about us without Jesus? That we're groping in hopeless darkness, unable to see where we should go. If Jesus swoops in to meet this great need, what must we be? The needy people groping around in the dark in need of light. This is John 10 and verse 14 when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. If Jesus is the shepherd, what does that make us? It makes us sheep. You know what sheep are? The Bible bears this out. Sheep are dumb and they're defenseless and they're helpless. They need to be cared for. They need to be fed. They need to be protected. They need to be comforted. If Jesus is the good shepherd, if he swoops in to meet this great need, what does that make us? Needy sheep who have a lot of needs. This is John 11 and verse 25. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. If with Jesus we can have life, if with Jesus we, we, we will not die, what does that mean we will be without Jesus? It means we will be dead without any hope. Jesus offers us our only hope in death. We have no power against death and we have no reason to hope for anything without Jesus gives these great blessings. What must we be but people who are in dire need of what he has? This is John 14 and verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If Jesus gives us direction and this guaranteed destination with the Father, where does that leave us without Jesus? It leaves us as aimless wanderers through life without hope of ever finding truth, of ever finding life, or or ever finding God. And finally, John 15 and verse 5 says... I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If a connection to Jesus is like being connected to a life-giving vine who gives us all nutrients, who enables us to bear fruit and, and bring about all these good things, if Jesus is that vine who gives us all those things, where are we left without a connection to Jesus? It leaves us dead branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you see what the point I'm trying to make? When Jesus makes these statements, 
He's not just telling us about himself. He's telling us about us, about ourselves. Each great I am statement assumes an accompanying you are statement about us. It says we are hungry and we are in darkness and we are helpless sheep and we are hopeless and we are directionless and we are fruitless and we are dead and we are in need and we are poor. To own your spiritual poverty is not some mental trick, not something you just keep telling yourself to achieve a more beneficial mental state. That's not what we're talking about. To own your spiritual poverty, all it is is to live in reality, to simply say, Jesus, the stuff you say about me is right. My desperation, my need for you is just 100% correct. To own your spiritual poverty just means we understand ourselves as we really are. And as we see the truth about ourselves, we are ready to see the truth about Jesus, how he answers our desperation at each point. To own your spiritual poverty is simply to understand yourself as you really are and where you fit in God's world. And number three, third and finally, owning your spiritual poverty is the key to properly relating to others. Owning your spiritual poverty is the key to properly relating to others. This is Luke chapter 18. Turn with me there. Luke 18. What we think about ourselves naturally extends to how we think about others. What we think about ourselves, whether we think we are spiritually rich or spiritually poor, always plays itself out in how we treat, how we relate to other people. That's exactly what's happening in Luke 18 and verse 9. Luke 18 and verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So here's the kind of people he's targeting. Verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus concludes with these words. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So people who trust in themselves that they are righteous, verse 9, are clearly not owning their poverty. They're trusting in themselves. They are saying, I'm well off spiritually. But it's not just a them problem. It's not just that they have a wrong view of themselves. That lack of ownership infects how they treat others. And so the next thing he says in verse 9 is, they treat others with contempt. And in the story, that's the Pharisee who prays air quotes, praise, only God seems to have nothing to do with anything in his prayer. To him, God is sort of a glorified referee. God is mainly there to declare him the winner of some imaginary contest in, in the holiness contest. His prayer is essentially, God, I thank you so much that I am so great. And then he lists his moral and spiritual accomplishments, touting his spiritual wealth, all of it saying, I'm well off. I am rich and I've got it together. And then you've got this tax collector who could not be more different. Notice he feels unworthy to even look at heaven. He doesn't even lift up his eyes 
And then someone pointed this out to me. I never picked up on this before. He even feels unworthy to come too close to the temple. So do you notice he's standing far off? He's standing far off. The Pharisee, I imagine him as sort of the middle of everything, looking up at the ceiling, sort of ready to accept God's blessings for his holiness. The tax collector is far off, not looking up, not even wanting to get too close to God's house. He beats his breast in shame and sorrow. And the content of his prayer is, is short, but it's raw and passionate. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There's no concern in his prayer about the Pharisee and what he's got going on or any other person. He only begs for God's mercy. And Jesus praises that prayer. And he connects it to humility. There is no better distillation of the, pov- the poverty of spirit than this prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I dare say we never outgrow that prayer or become too righteous to offer it on this side of eternity. But also notice this. The Pharisee glances with disdain at his fellow worshiper. Verse 11 again. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, uh, or even like this tax collector. You can, you can almost see his lip curl as he looks around at all the people he's better than, that, that he condescends. He looks at the tax collector in particular, and he says to himself, who let this guy near the temple? And he places himself above the other groups, conveniently ignoring that perhaps he's not worthy to enter God's presence. There's no thought about that. And it's that lack of ownership of his own spiritual poverty that leads him to treat others with contempt. Here's how this works. We try to follow God's word, hopefully. We have some success, hopefully. We change part of our lives. And then we begin to forget. We begin to forget our past. We start to look in the mirror, and we start to see something that's looking pretty good. Better than we used to look, spiritually, morally. And then we look around at others who are brazenly sinning, who are not trying to serve God in the way I am, we pat ourselves on the back. And we begin to treat them as lesser and ourselves as greater. And we have no sympathy for them and their sin, and we have no memory of our own sorry state that we used to be in, in their shoes. We forget that we were once where they, they are before we found Jesus. We have no interest in their efforts to change, no, uh, no thought to what it is they might need. All we think is they simply haven't put forth the effort I have. They are simply not as good as I am. We harden and we feel superior. Something like that is the path this Pharisee took. The Pharisee sees himself as the star player on God's team. Well, the tax collector feels he doesn't even deserve to be on the team. And Jesus ends this parable by saying in verse 14 that both men are actually mistaken about where they belong. Both men are mistaken about where they belong. Verse 14, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus says the guy who sees himself as high is wrong. He deserves to be brought down low. Well, the guy who sees himself down low is wrong too. He deserves to be brought high. Jesus says our justification... Another way of saying our right standing before God, our justification depends on whether we are ready to own our spiritual poverty. And the contempt we have for others may be a sign we are more eager to own the spiritual poverty of other peoples, of other people than ourselves. We are more more eager to say, yes, they are sorry spiritually 
than we are ourselves. I am sorry without Jesus. You know, occasionally we come face to face with our need. Occasionally in life, it happens to us much less frequently than people in past generations, but occasionally we come face to face with the fact that we are desperate and helpless. It happens when the doctor tells us we're sick. Happens when the checking account is smaller than the bills. Happens when we get called out on our character flaws and our blunders and it's really, it's really making a mess of our lives. It happens when relationships break down and we come to realize, I don't know anything about being married. I don't know anything about being a friend. I've really messed up. You know, these moments we have, these moments of desperation and helplessness, are really glimpses of a deeper truth which is we are always desperate and we're always in need. These moments of desperation where we realize how helpless we are, these are not the exception. These are the rule. We are always desperate. We are always in need. We are always poor. The only question is whether or not we'll admit it. The psalmist says simply in Psalm 86, I am poor and needy. He was poor in spirit. I do not live like I should. I do not know everything I need to know. I need someone to guide me and protect me. I don't have it all figured out. I'm not self-sufficient. I need someone to give me proper direction. I need a savior. I need a teacher. I need to be taught better. I need strength to do the things I know I should do. I am utterly unworthy of God's favor. I do not deserve any good thing. I need Jesus. And so, because I think that, not some mental trick, but because I apprehend the truth about myself, that I am so poor, because I know that about myself, I will listen to Jesus because I know He is right. Even if it means I'm wrong, I'm ready to admit that. I'm ready to own that. I will follow Jesus, even if it means denying myself, because you know what? I'm ready to own that too. I don't know it all. I don't have all the answers. I'm ready to listen to Jesus. Follow Him. And I will adopt Jesus' character, even if it means admitting my character was flawed. Because you know what? I already own that. I already said that about myself. And I will not argue with Jesus when he tells me something I don't want to do. Because who am I? I already own that. I, I don't know it all. I, I, I don't have all the answers. And I'm ready to receive Jesus' word with meekness. Because I am meek. I am poor in spirit. I will be a disciple. That's the logic of the first words out of Jesus' mouth in his public ministry. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the question this morning is, is yours the kingdom of heaven? Are you ready to own your poverty? If there's anyone ready to come admit your deep need, ready to come uh, in search of a savior, in search of a life with him, in search of forgiveness because of some sin, come forward right now as we stand and sing. Have I no been nailed to the cross? Is thy heart right with God? in the crimson flood, cleansed and made holy, humble and lowly, right in the sight of God. Has our dominion or self and or sin, yes, I heart right with God. Over all evil without and within, yes, I heart right with God. Is thy heart right with God, washed in the crimson flood, 
under Jesus' control, is thy heart right with God? Does each moment abide in thy soul, is thy heart right with God? Is thy heart right with God? Washed in the crimson flood, cleansed and made holy, humble and holy, right in the sun. 